This is Mark Lemley from Stanford Law School, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 68 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Nehal Medani, CEO of Alt Legal, and he's talking about portfolio management for IP portfolios. But before we jump into this interview, we have really exciting news for the friends of the Unified Patent System and the Unified Patent Court. On November 28, 2016, the UK Minister of State for Intellectual Property, Baroness Neville Rolfe, said that uh, the UK would be participating in the UPC agreement, the UPC system, and would ratify the UPC agreement. She said the new system will provide an option for businesses that need to protect their inventions across Europe. The UK has been working with partners in Europe to develop this option. She went on saying, as the Prime Minister has said, for as long as we are members of the EU, the UK will continue to play a full and active role. We will seek the best deal possible as we negotiate a new agreement with the European Union. We want that deal to reflect the kind of mature cooperative relationship that close friends and allies enjoy. We wanted to involve free trade in goods and services. We wanted to give British companies the maximum freedom to trade with and operate in the single market and let European businesses do the same in the UK. She added, but the decision to proceed with ratification should not be seen as a preempting the UK's objectives for position in the forthcoming negotiations with the EU. So that came very surprising to many of us patent professionals and uh, me personally, I'm very happy about this development. The UPC will enter into force uh, shortly. It is expected that after ratification by the UK, Germany will ratify shortly thereafter and then the, U uh, the UPC system can enter into force and the whole system will start working. So in the near future, we will invite guests um, who are competent in this field and uh, we will try to educate our listeners about the new system. If you want to read the full press release, uh, you can go to the website of the um, Intellectual Property Office of the UK and uh, go to the 28th of November 2016 and find the full press release um, for your information. So let's jump into today's interview with Nehal Medani. Ralph, I am pleased to be joined today by Nehal Medani. Nehal is the CEO and founder of Alt Legal, a cloud-based software platform used to prepare and manage global intellectual property filings. Prior to assuming the helm of this company, Nehal served as an associate with Kirkland & Ellis in New York City. Nehal holds a BA from Northwestern University, a certificate in business and public policy from the Wharton School, and a JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Welcome, Nehal, to IP Fridays. Thank you, Ken. I'm looking forward to speaking today. 
Excellent. So, Nehal, you went to law school and pursued a legal career in big law before starting your own technology business. Uh, can you tell our listeners about that transition and what was the most difficult part of deciding to leave to start your own business? Absolutely. So my entrepreneurial journey actually started a little bit earlier, um, pre-law school. I had started my first company in college and carried it through the first couple years of law school. I went straight through. So I always had somewhat of an entrepreneurial bent. Um, Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. though, that business didn't work out. And of course, like many other businesses in 2008 and 2009, it crashed. But it exposed me to the excitement of starting and growing a new business. So graduating law school in 2009, knew it was not a great time to start a new business. I ended up joining Kirkland Ellis, where I'd been a summer associate. And so after a few years there, I knew I wanted to return to entrepreneurship, the excitement of it, uh, sort of uncertainty of building something from nothing. And so Mm -hmm. ultimately, I left in 2013 and was eager to start a legal technology company so I could marry my interest in law and technology. But, you know, I guess looking back on the transition, I think the most challenging part was starting with limited resources. Coming from a large established firm like Kirkland Ellis, there was always support for whatever I needed to get done. And yes. here it was just me and almost basically a cubicle in Chinatown. Wow. <laughs> sure. Now, was there anything you did to prepare for that transition? Um, is there anything that you would do differently now, uh, having run your business for a few years? Sure. So in the months leading up to leaving Kirkland, I actually had scheduled a lot of meetings with entrepreneurs, lawyers who had successfully transitioned into the business roles, into startups, and really anyone that was willing to share any insight on this transition that I was about to make. I also attended a lot of networking events um, with like-minded individuals. I attended legal conferences wherever I could find them. And they were all so helpful in mm-hmm. understanding the challenges I would face in starting a new company. And a lot of them just actually provided a lot of insight in how to avoid some of the common mistakes. Mm-hmm. So that was incredibly helpful. And then the other thing I did is as soon as I left the law firm, I spent the first few months learning computer programming on my own and ultimately programmed the first version. And that is something that's been paying dividends today. Well, I can imagine. What programming language uh, did you take up? Um, I chose Python and then used Django as a framework, which made it actually much easier. I initially started with PHP and actually (laughs) that didn't last too long. Mm -hmm. Now, what does a normal day look like for you as the CEO of a legal technology company? So I think what I'd like about this role the most is that every day is different. But the thing that I do enjoy the most and probably where I spend most of my time is probably over half of my time is talking to new customers and our current customers. So we're always providing support. We're always learning what they need so we can serve their needs in the best possible way. And of course, there's Mm -hmm. always a sales component to it. And then I probably would say I spend a quarter of my time on product right now. We're currently working on applying the technology that we've used to automate USPTO trademark filings to work with US patents as well as global IP filings. And sure, as you can imagine, this involves a fair amount of legal research and understanding the nuances yeah. of technology and the data and applying the law. And then we're also really starting to look at interesting ways we can take advantage of the data that we've aggregated. For example, right now, just with the US trademark filings, there's millions of trademarks in our database. And of course, as you know, hundreds of thousands being filed every year in the US alone. So our team is really starting to look at what kind of insights can we provide IP professionals to make their lives easier. 
Yes. Now, uh, what advice would you give to someone, let's say, who is looking to leave a traditional career in law and make uh, the same type of transition that you did? Sure. Um, so I think I mentioned one of the most helpful things for me when I was looking to leave the legal practice was connecting with like-minded professionals who had made the switch, who could talk about the challenges they faced in transitioning to different roles outside of the law and how they really applied that legal way of thinking, the legal skills mm -hmm. that they had developed. So first, I would suggest to anyone who's looking to leave to connect with as many people in your network as possible and even outside your network. And to any listener, of course, I'm happy to be a resource in any way I can. Um, and, you know, cold email actually worked a lot, really well. So some of the best meetings I actually had was from people I had never met and just reached out to on a whim. And did you use social media to connect with people? I did. I got really good at um, learning to search LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing what you could do with LinkedIn filters to find the right person. You could apply a particular school and say anyone who's worked at this company in the past, for example. And then the other thing I would say is definitely do your homework. There is a lot of information online in form of blogs, podcasts like this, elsewhere on di what different professionals have done. And so this way, when you do take any meeting, you can go in with as much intelligence as possible. Yes. And yeah, that that's definitely a good uh, a pointer there. Absolutely. It was very helpful to just get as smart as possible. And then lastly, what's happening now is that there's a lot of movement in legal technology. And so there's a lot of great events that are happening. So one of the groups that we're part of that has been doing a great job of spearheading an effort to organize a community around legal tech is Evolve Law. And so they organize mm -hmm. events all around the country. In fact, I think in Canada as well. So they're trying to be more global. And there's actually a conference happening next week that's great for anyone interested in legal tech in Chicago. It's called the Clio Cloud Conference. Okay. And you're going to be going to that? I will be. I will also be speaking on law and technology there too. Excellent. Now, uh, the legal field, you know, is fast. It changes every day. Um and there's been a tremendous push, uh, you know, in technology-wise towards using the cloud. Where do you see legal tech heading in the next five and ten years? It's an interesting question. I think at this point, the debate as to whether legal tech is here to stay or is a fad is largely settled. I think the last stat that I read was, I think it's like over 80% of law firms maintained or increased their technology budget last year. Mm-hmm. And more and more, people are valuing the cloud because it provides a lot of mobility. And so we're seeing adoption there, I think, double or triple even in the last four or five years. But where I think what sort of trends I think are actually here to stay are cloud-based software. I think people are becoming much more comfortable with the cloud, storing their data there, but and really appreciate the more mobility and the agility that it provides. So when attorneys are looking at transitioning, for example, IP docketing to the cloud, they like that they can access it from anywhere, that they can all collaborate together and see the same information in real time, which is if you ever use Google Documents, is one of the values that it provides over Microsoft Word, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, your software over at All Legal uh, seems to integrate with IP offices uh, and databases and filing systems. Can you tell our listeners about how your technology integrates uh, with particular IP offices? Sure. So we use a couple of different technologies. So first, we use something called APIs, Application Program Interface, mm -hmm. which is basically a programmatic way for two different 
computer programs to talk to each other. So our software, our servers, will talk to, for example, the USPTO servers and receive data from them. So APIs allow us to programmatically retrieve information in a structured and more accurate way. In the past, and maybe even today, some vendors will go out and just scrape the web pages off of IP offices, and that results in often inaccurate or no data. So one of the things that we've done is really be API first. So we go in and we'll use the USPTO's API, for example, to automatically identify attorney's trademarks, update them whenever there's any kind of change, and then instantly calculate all their deadlines. So that's what we do with APIs, but where there is no API, we've also created workarounds. So for example, in the case of T's applications today, there's no programmatic way for anyone to send information into a T's form. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we actually created a program that layers on top of all T's application pages and will take information that's stored in our database, in our intake forms, in our trademark forms that attorneys assemble or clients assemble and actually automatically transfer it into an application. So we've tried to find ways where there are structured ways to work with IP offices and where there isn't, we create workarounds to make. So you're, get, you're getting into a lot of automation, it sounds like there. We are. We're, my goal in starting this company was really to find ways that attorneys can just focus on the substantive task. Mm -hmm. And this way, the repetitive task, the task that doesn't really require as much interpretation or anything that's administrative, can be handled by software because that's what software is good at. Yes. Yeah, now you talked about APIs. Do all IP offices around the world have APIs, and are some of these APIs better than others? So, unfortunately, not all IP offices have APIs today. Some, for example, don't even have electronic databases, and I think maybe it was last year we actually wrote a blog post about how different technology companies will arbitrage the lack of IP electronic databases to file in certain jurisdictions and then later claim priority in jurisdictions where there is electronic mm -hmm. database. Mm -hmm. But the USPTO does provide an API, so we've been able to take advantage of that for trademarks and TTAB. But you know, one of the best APIs that we've ever uncovered is the New Zealand IP office. Interesting. And what they allow you to do is not just retrieve information about IP filings, but you could actually submit responses to examiner requests. You could renew your trademark filings or current applications, and you can file new applications all programmatically, which means that you could never visit the New Zealand IP office website and create mm -hmm. a structured program that will go through some sort of repetition and submit a new application, for example. Certainly sounds like a brave new world we're entering into. Exactly. They actually went um, entirely paperless, um, and it was a big undertaking. It was a painful undertaking, as I understand it, but it's now going to be paying returns for a long time. Now, uh, Nihal, you've recently authored a column for the World Trademark Review about what IP offices should do to innovate. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that article? Sure. So the World Trade, I think it was in last the issue of World Trademark Review, not the most recent one, um, but it discussed some of the main issues that we identified with IP offices. So we see IP offices as serving two core roles. One is receiving and recording IP and related filings. Another one is retrieving information and providing infrastructure so that others can. And so they are official record keepers. But when you look at it, most IP offices haven't really thought of their data and their structure of 
delivering that data in the same way that New Zealand has. We're starting to mm -hmm. see more electronic IP filings. And so, for example, at the USPTO, I think at this point, not over 99% of trademarks are electronically filed. And that's resulting in a lot of other improvements. So, for example, the first action on a paper-based filing is much higher and a higher likelihood of receiving one than ones that are not. Mm -hmm. But what we want to really say to IP offices is start looking at an API-driven architecture where everything can be submitted through an API, everything can be retrieved through API. And what this could allow IP offices to do is focus more on those core functions and less on delivering a better user experience or better user interface and really you know, narrow in on what their core functions are that way. Yes. Now, Nihal, uh, we've come a long way in technology. We're almost at the end of 2016, entering into 2017. Uh, given how much legal technology is out there and, and what's being developed, what specific technologies and tools do you think uh, would benefit IP professionals today? No, I think um, it's probably one of those. It's probably the same that it's always been. As any IP professional knows, you need a great docketing system. Okay. And we certainly recommend, whether it's us or anyone else, to adopt a cloud-based docketing system. There's still a lot of attorneys that are manually docketing filings, whether it's an award document or whether it's an Excel sheet. And it works to a degree, but as the complexity of your portfolio increases, there's certainly detriment to that kind of strategy. And um, I think even the USPTOs highlighted that in some of their ethics opinions. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, you know, practice management software. We haven't seen as many IP attorneys adopt this as I think would benefit from it to handle the billing, the back office functions, really kind of going to what I said earlier, where you can just focus on the substantive and you can use software tools like docketing or practice management to handle those administrative, those repetitive tasks. Mm -hmm. So there's three providers I think are probably among the leading providers today in the market, Clio, MyCase, and Rocket Matter, that really do handle this back office function well. And then yes. the last thing that I would say that IP attorneys I think would benefit from, and just like any attorneys, is strong customer relationship management tools, CRMs, where they can mm -hmm. effectively see who they've contacted, when they've contacted them, and build stronger relationships. This you commonly see in the business world, but I don't think it's made the same stride in the legal world today. Nihal, thank you so much for joining us here today on IP Fridays. Truly fascinating, and we look forward to hearing and reading more about you in the future. Thank you so much, Ken. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. 
You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.